0: more recent evidence suggests that well maybe it does matter that even among day workers going to bed a little bit later or eating a little bit later does seem to be associated with worse cardiovascular metabolic profiles.
1: Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Kristen Knudsen, welcome to Human OS Radio.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So our mutual colleague, Greg Potter, who's been a guest on HumanOS Radio and a collaborator with creating some courses for Human OS, put us in contact. So you guys met at a recent meeting, I understand.
0: Yes, that's correct. We met in person. I follow him on Twitter. So I'm aware of Greg and we met in the UK at a British Sleep Society conference. And that's how we got in touch with you.
1: Greg told me that you have an interesting story about how you got into sleep medicine. Would you mind sharing that with us?
0: Sure. So... My bachelor's degree is in English literature, but after graduating from college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, so I moved to Chicago, and I ended up working at Northwestern University, and while I was there, I took classes and ultimately decided that I wanted to go into biomedical anthropology because my interest has been in human health, but I was interested in it from a not just a biological perspective, but taking into account social and cultural factors, mm-hmm. but while I was working at Northwestern University, my job was secretary to the chair of the Neurobiology and Physiology Department. And at the time, that was Fred Turek. And if you don't know who he is, he is one of the leading people studying circadian rhythms in sleep in animal models. And so as a secretary, I worked on grant applications, class slides, manuscripts, and learned a lot about sleep and circadian rhythms at that time. Then I went off to graduate school in Albany in anthropology. But as many people may know, anthropology graduate school students are not well-funded. So I came back to work for Fred one summer to make some extra money. And at the time he asked me, he's like, well, who in anthropology is studying sleep? Mm. And I said, well, that's a great question. And it was really surprising to me that there were very few people in anthropology studying sleep per se, particularly given the fact that all humans sleep and there are very few human universals, but that's one of them. And so when I went back to Albany, I finished my master's, which was looking at pollutant levels, blood lead levels, actually, I told my advisor, Hey, I want to study sleep now. And I think at first he thought I might've been a little bit crazy, but (laughs) (laughs) in the end it worked out
1: that's a great trajectory of how you got to where you are. Tell us where you are now and the type of work that you do.
0: Right. So now I am associate professor in the Center for Circadian Sleep Medicine at Northwestern University. So I came back to Northwestern, although now I'm at the medical school campus, uh, downtown Chicago instead of up in Evanston. And my research focuses on broadly speaking, two main questions is what is the role sleep and circadian rhythms have in health? And often my focus has been on cardiovascular and metabolic health. Mm -hmm. But again, as an anthropologist, I'm also interested in sociocultural factors and so have a big interest in looking at whether sleep mediates health disparities between racial and ethnic groups or socioeconomic groups.
1: We can talk about both of those today. Let's start with sleep and metabolism. That's where I first became aware of your work. That's area where I've done research myself. So I've read a lot of your papers. Tell me about some of the first studies that you got a part of and then started to lead on your own.
0: As we know that obesity has been on the increase for at least 40 years rapidly so too rapidly to be explained by changes in our genetic makeup and so a lot of people have been trying to understand what led to this obesity epidemic because obesity is associated with a wide array of health problems from diabetes to heart disease to cancer to arthritis and so it's really we need to understand why obesity is so highly prevalent today and I think the sleep field had started to identify associations between how much and how well someone sleeps and obesity risk. And so my early work, after I finished my PhD residency requirements at Albany, I joined the group led by Ev Van Cotter at the University of Chicago, who led some of the seminal work looking at experimental partial sleep restriction on cardiovascular and metabolic parameters. And that work is sort of what led to an explosion of additional work looking at habitual sleep and cardiometabolic disease risk. And so that is where I started and why I started focusing a lot on the metabolic effects of sleep and health.
1: And if you're listening to this podcast and you're not in the sleep field, it's good to understand that Chicago is like an epicenter for sleep and metabolism research. There's Evan Cotter is certainly a notable figure in there, but there is so much good research that starts there and then spreads out and goes to different institutions. And once people advance in their career.
0: Oh, yeah. Our trainees, we send them out into the world to expand the work. So Van Cotter's work has been typically experimental work and her collaborators would bring typically healthy individuals into the lab and restrict time available for sleep and look at the effects on cardiovascular or metabolic measures. So, for example, they've seen that you know restricting time in bed only four or five hours per night is associated with reductions in insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance, which, if that was maintained on a chronic basis, would increase the risk of diabetes. But they've also seen that these experimental studies have led to alterations in appetite hormones in a direction that would increase appetite. And indeed, when they asked subjects, research volunteers about their appetite, they did see appetite increase, especially for calorie dense foods like potato chips, cookies, candy. And so that led to concerns about, well, maybe sleep is related to obesity risk. And other experimental studies that allowed the volunteers to eat what they wanted after sleep restriction did see, in fact, that they did eat more after sleep restriction. But, you know, these are experimental studies, so they're short term by nature. They're a week or two at the most in the laboratory. And the question remained, well, if they were to remain a short sleeper, maybe their body would adapt and it wouldn't really be associated with risk of obesity or diabetes in the long term. And so that's where my work came in is I wanted to take these research questions outside the laboratory and look out in the real world and see does habitual sleep pattern associate with cardiovascular or diabetes or obesity risk?
1: We know that obesity is a major public health issue and it's grown tremendously over the last 40 years and it associates with 50 to almost 100 different comorbidities. So it's a major public health issue the association between less sleep and the increased risk for obesity was noticed. And this either happened concurrently or just before looking into, okay, well, what if we restrict sleep in people in the lab? What kind of effects do we see? We see alterations in glucose metabolism. We see changes in hunger and even the type of food that they pursue the next day. changes in eating behavior. And this has now led to you saying, okay, well, here's another area of this that we can go a little further. So what are the risks of cardiovascular disease for people that generally get less sleep on Average, is that correct?
0: Exactly. Because, yeah, again, experimental studies are obviously a very strong research design, but they're short term by nature. And, And if we're interested in chronic disease, we have to understand or try to understand more long term associations between habitual chronic sleep behavior and risk of disease. And there have been many large observational epidemiological studies that have now looked at some measure of sleep, whether it's self-reported sleep duration or subjective sleep quality. And in general, the results in these large observational studies are consistent with the experimental studies and have found that people who sleep typically less than six hours per night, adults, to associated with increased incident obesity, diabetes, coronary heart disease, and stroke And poor sleep quality has also been associated with incident diabetes risk as well. In some of my early work with an epidemiologic study called CARDIA, we added wrist actigraphy monitoring to try to get an objective estimate of sleep because most prior observational studies relied on self-reported measures, and we wanted to try to obtain a more objective estimate. And if you're not familiar with wrist actigraphy, its methodology is very similar to a Fitbit type of device that's based on wrist movements, but it has been validated against gold standard polysomnography measures of sleep.
1: Right. And that's easier to execute on that. So instead of bringing somebody into the lab where they've got many hookups to measure sleep more intensely, actigraphy tracks decently well, at least according to some measures. So it's easier to implement in a larger population or over longer periods of time.
0: I think Important too, because you can do polysomnography in the home, and I do that, and as do others. But you can only do so many nights in a row. Yeah, one, two. But even if you are, you're hooking up all these electrodes on these people's heads and face and arms. They're not gonna, after you hook them up, they're not gonna decide to run out to grab a beer or go to a movie. You know, they are covered in electrodes, and they're very aware that their sleep is being monitored. So I really do think it's going to affect their behavior. It's the only way we can get really well measures of sleep stages like REM sleep or slow-wave sleep. But if we really want to understand habitual sleep patterns and behaviors, actigraphy is preferable because you like you said, you can do multiple nights in a row and people don't sleep the same amount night after night after night. So you do need to capture multiple nights in order to get a more reliable average of what their sleep looks like.
1: Let's look at the question of sleep quality versus just sleep time. And there does seem to be indications that changes or reductions in REM and slow wave sleep seem to be important for metabolism and eating behavior. Have you done any work in those areas specifically?
0: I have not because most of our epidemiology studies have had a So we haven't had Sleep stages. I'm doing a study now that has in home polysomnography, but I don't have any preliminary results to share at this point because I do think slow wave sleep and REM sleep, it's still important to try to capture what that looks like in the home because how someone sleeps in the home is not necessarily how they sleep in my laboratory. Right. But I think it's an important question based on some of the experimental studies that have looked at sleep, slow wave sleep suppression, and impairments in glucose metabolism. But it's harder for larger epidemiology studies to collect these data. Some have, and, and there has been some evidence by others that slow. slow Slow-wave sleep is still associated with some of these measures based
1: on home PSG. I'm fascinated by some of the new technologies to enhance slow-wave sleep by phase-locking sound Mm -hmm. to when the slow-wave sleep is occurring to amplify it and extend it. Yes it looks like there's multiple different groups that are working on something like that now. So I'm hopeful that that will be a successful intervention that could be broadly used.
0: Yeah, and I'm fascinated too. I know a lot of the people doing it right now are focusing, I believe, on more on cognitive outcomes. But yeah. from a cardiometabolic perspective, if slow wave sleep is particularly important for cardiometabolic function, then I hope some of these studies are also collecting that data as well.
1: Yeah, perhaps clearing beta amyloid, perhaps proving memory and cognition, and also the metabolic parameters too, that needs to be addressed as well. Hmm, maybe we just thought of a study. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's Ha <laughs> Wonderful. Well, tell us about the other half of your work is looking more at, is sleep playing a role in differential health outcomes among different populations?
0: Right. So my earlier work, we started with, as I said, you know, I was interested in the relationship between sleep and health. And in Cardia, we observed early on that there were these strong race-sex differences in sleep duration and quality based on actigraphy. Now, Cardia was a study that started back in 1985, 1986, and they enrolled only whites and African-Americans or blacks into that cohort. And when we first compared the sleep duration and then the sleep efficiency, which is a measure of sleep quality, the percentage of time in bed actually spent sleeping, we saw that black males had the lowest sleep duration and the lowest sleep quality followed by black females and then white males and white females on the other side. But we also saw socioeconomic differences too. Higher income and higher education was associated with more sleep and better sleep quality. And we thought once we did multivariate adjustment that we would greatly diminish the race-sex differences, including adjusted for income, education, and employment status, which are main three socioeconomic indicators commonly used, as well as a variety of other behavioral or environmental factors. And still, the race-sex differences persisted strongly. And so this was really the first analysis for me that suggested that there may be these race-sex differences in uh, sleep duration quality based on objective measures that aren't easily explained away just by socioeconomic indicators. Now, as a caveat I should point out that these are broad indicators and certainly do not capture all the socioeconomic, cultural, psychosocial factors that differ between race ethnicity due to social differences in our country. So I do acknowledge that, but I think it's worth exploring because if sleep's important for health and minorities are not sleeping as well, then that is a pathway through which health disparities may arise. And so that's what led me to another study that I was part of where Mercedes Carnathon at Northwestern led, called the Chicago Area Sleep Study In that study, we had Whites, Blacks, and a group of Hispanics, as well as a group of Asians. And in that study, again, we saw that these differences between Blacks and Whites using objective actigraphy persisted. In that study, we had an objective estimate of sleep disorder breathing, so we could exclude that as a potential explanation for sleep differences between these groups. And we also saw that the Hispanics and the Asians also slept less than the Whites. So again, it's a very common finding, not just my group, but other groups as well. And so now we really want to see, is sleep a mediator mm. we've had two papers one from cardio one from the chicago area sleep study that suggests that sleep duration does at least partially explain differences in blood pressure between blacks and whites there's more work to be done in this area but these are some intriguing findings that suggest we need to understand better the role of sleep disparities in other health disparities
1: did you mean that gender and race are mediators of sleep, or am I misunderstanding?
0: For example, being African American or black is associated with higher blood pressure or risk of hypertension. Is sleep partially explaining that difference in hypertension between blacks and whites? Right, okay. So sleep is mediating the relationship between race and blood
1: pressure. Got it, yeah.
0: Or diabetes or whichever outcome.
1: You can see how you're really honing in on getting a true answer here. So is it just socioeconomic? Is it other factors? Is it breathing? Or is it the differences in sleep between gender and race that's leading to these outcomes? That's very, very interesting. Yes. Are you currently enrolling and conducting studies and do you have plans for future studies as well?
0: Yeah, so I have one ongoing study where I'm enrolling blacks and whites and doing detailed measures of sleep in the home using actigraphy and polysomnography in their home, in their bedroom, as well as some circadian measures, so dim light melatonin onset to see if there's any circadian differences between blacks and whites as well because in addition, we talked about sleep duration, we talked about sleep quality, but I think timing of behaviors is another area, like sleep timing, that may be relevant for health as well. So, just not to complicate the picture any more than necessary, but now you know sleep is about duration, quality, and timing, and so that's a whole new area that people are starting to look at with respect to cardiometabolic health.
1: So, when in your circadian phase you are actually getting the sleep versus just how much sleep you're getting.
0: Exactly. Speaking of timing, we know shift workers, people who work at night shifts, compared to day workers, has have, have for a long time we've known that shift workers have worse health on a variety of different health outcomes. But we also thought, well, they're you know they're completely backwards in terms of when they're doing things as a very severe and extreme circadian disruption situation but the rest of us who are day workers you know it doesn't matter but you know more recent evidence suggests that well maybe it does matter that even among day workers going to bed a little bit later or eating a little bit later does seem to be associated with worse cardiovascular metabolic profiles and so even given the same sleep duration does someone who goes to bed earlier are they healthier have better cardiometabolic function than people who go to bed a little bit later and those are the questions we're now trying to ask is even among those of us who aren't shifting workers, is it still important? What time you go to bed? And and data so far suggests that it, it is, that people who do these things earlier in the day have better health profiles.
1: You also have a study going on looking at morning light treatment to improve glucose metabolism in people.
0: Right. And this is following some of the circadian rhythm perspective on cardiovascular and metabolic health. So in this study, yeah, we're still enrolling. We want to see whether morning light treatment, which is known to advance rhythms if it's at the correct time, it also morning light is an alerting factor yeah. in and of itself. We want to see whether that can lead to improvements in glucose metabolism in people at high risk of diabetes. So I, I don't have preliminary data for you yet, but that is in line with this interest in circadian rhythms and circadian disruption in relation to metabolic disease risk.
1: There was a study that just came out in the Z-Lab saying that bright light exposure at night and in the morning seemed to be problematic for glucose control.
0: Yes, and they're actually right down the bottom. I, I, I
1: figured you did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Right, so a bright light at night would you know be associated with a delay in your circadian rhythms, and that's it would be bad. Bright light in the morning, in and of itself, should advance your rhythms. I think part of what matters is when you're getting that light relative to your internal clock. Mm-hmm. So. You can't just tell everyone to have bright light at 7 a.m. without knowing what that clock time is relative to what their internal clock time is. And so I think it gets complicated when you start looking at observational studies because you need to take into account sort of internal clock relative to external stimuli. And so in the study I'm doing with the morning light, we are measuring their dim light melatonin onset to know where they are on their internal clock relative to the external world.
1: know, any consumer measures where somebody can assess their internal clock timing?
0: I wish. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be a lot. Yeah. I mean, the short answer is no. I know there's some people trying to develop ways of assessing mm-hmm. it. Um, I think we have to stay tuned on that technology.
1: If you could measure your melatonin night after night, if you had the means to do that, could give you an indication.
0: Yeah. If you had the means to do that, yeah, absolutely. There's saliva. Melatonin can be measured in saliva, so you don't even have to break your finger and you have to get it assayed and you have to have the conditions correct. It has to be dim light. So it can be a little bit more challenging, but it can be done. But it, I don't know if it can be done easily right now. And that's what I think we would probably be waiting for. So it'll be a little while before you see it on your Apple iWatch, I think.
1: But it's coming. You know, I've been a part of that movement for a long time and it's been really interesting to see how it's really advancing. One opportunity that all of these applications or services, whether it's Fitbit or, or Apple, they're really paying attention to sleep now and hopefully they can put some big dollars behind it to bring in technology to make some of this identification of these biologically meaningful important measures helpful to then guide behavior to do the right thing get light at the right time go to bed at the right time eat at the right time all that
0: Oh, absolutely. And I've been waiting as an anthropologist, you know, my work is field-based and I need good field-based technologies to really estimate habitual sleep behaviors. And actigraphy has been great, but as we said, you can't get sleep stages from that. You can't get circadian phase from that. And so every conference... I always go through the booth to see what's coming out now. What's the next field-based device I can use? And it is nice that bigger companies like Apple, for example, or Google, or whoever, might be interested in these devices to drive the technology advancement, because up until then, it was really clinic-based measures that were where the money was to put it crudely, and so they were really more interested in developing technology to be used in the clinic, not necessarily in the field. And now yeah. we have the population who want to be able to monitor their own health and behavior, providing the demand, and now we have maybe more companies interested in providing supply and advancing our technology.
1: I'm interviewing the founder and CEO of Aura Ring next week. Have you heard of them? Yes, I
0: have heard of
1: that. Yeah. So they're people from Polar, which is one of the oldest self tracking companies in the world, and they broke off from there and started this company and they're just about to launch their Gen two. Pretty interesting. So they're triangulate multiple different signals, including movement and heart rate and temperature, to then say, Okay, we've got good samples of these different parameters. Can we use that to give better prediction on sleep stages and et cetera? So so I'm one cool example about how we're getting there.
0: Yeah, I think temperature coming back to, is there any way for us to figure out our own internal clock? You know, we also have biological rhythms of temperature. So if the surface temperature measures can be validated well enough to reflect core body temperature rhythms, then that may be an easier way than having to take saliva or blood if the technology can get us there. And that would be great.
1: I gave a presentation at the University of Washington back in September about hunter-gatherer sleep, talking about how it's difficult to bring PSG into the field. Even though it's gotten more portable, but PSG is great when you're really trying to identify markers of sleep pathology. But it's not good for measuring natural sleep. And so, the more powerful that these devices become, and the less friction that they have in measuring sleep itself, then there's a lot more to discover about what natural sleep looks like.
0: Yeah. Now, and whether that's Hunter Gatherer or just in Chicago, like it's not easy. Like I said earlier on, like the second you slap on a bunch of electrodes on somebody's head, you know, you're going to affect their behavior, and it may not reflect what their a normal night of sleep would look. Like like for that yeah and yeah agree if we can get the technology to a point where it's less intrusive it's going to improve our measures and the last thing i just want to add is we hear a lot about diet and exercise as the core of healthy lifestyle but i want everyone to add sleep into that group and think about not just sleep duration but quality and potentially timing as well for chronic disease prevention and a healthier lifestyle
1: i think that's a perfect summary of where we are thank you so much Kristen.
0: all right thanks dan
1: Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.